This week's episode is sponsored by K16 Solutions. Institutions that are using Canvas and Banner have good reason to be excited. K16 Solutions, the company that brought the industry's first automated LMS migration and archiving options, now offers a data integration solution. Scaffold Data X is a new solution that extracts data from Canvas and Banner, places it in a neutral data model, and stores it in a data warehouse. The result is a cleaner view of the data. If your institution is looking for a better way to integrate its data, visit k16solutions.com. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and an editor here at EdSurge. For students at a new charter school based in Florida, entering the classroom means putting on a VR headset. While plenty of schools have experimented with doing short lessons in virtual reality, this new school, it's called Optima Academy Online, it's embraced the tech as a primary mode of course delivery. That means these students, they log a lot of time in VR. Students in third through eighth grades are given a MetaQuest 2 VR headset, and they wear the devices for about 30 or 40 minutes at a time for three or four sessions every day. Younger children at this school, they, they use more traditional online tools like Microsoft Teams. The school's founder is Erica Donalds, and she hopes this cutting-edge technology can help spread an educational approach that's decidedly old-fashioned. She's a champion of a model of education that favors students reading classical texts and otherwise focusing on the traditional canons of art, literature, and culture. And ironically, she thinks that this latest VR technology may provide a unique way for students to hold Socratic dialogues and engage with ancient texts in ways that just can't be done in other formats. The school fascinated Emma Green. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker. And she's been spending a lot of time in these VR classrooms and researching the company for the magazine. Her article was published earlier this month, and it digs into how the school's backers hope it will lead to the next frontier in the school choice movement. For this week's EdSurge podcast... We connected with the New Yorker reporter, Emma Green, to find out what she learned about this school, about why some edtech experts are concerned about the amount of time these students are spending in VR, and about how the high-tech experiment fits within broader debates about the future of public education. I started by asking Emma Green what it was like when she visited these classes in VR. I went through a demo where we went to the moon and looked at different sizes and shapes of moon rocks, and they talked about trying to calculate the velocity and speed of these different rocks moving at different at different speeds, and um, it was really interesting, and it's what these kids do for their entire school day until the afternoon when they then do asynchronous work. They have access to teachers, but mostly they're doing their schoolwork through platforms um, like Teams if they're, they're meeting in small groups, or um, they'll look online and get their assignments. The headset, these like meta quest headsets that are, people have seen them, they're like pretty big hardware that they're strapping on um, to these children that are in these classes. So what grade was this demo you saw, for instance? So I went to a number of different demos. I saw some sixth graders. I saw some eighth graders. I was never with the youngest students, third graders, but I went to a bunch of different classroom settings as well. And the people who run the school gave me 
a demo and gave me a taste of the ways that this classroom might be adapted to school, different school ages. So for example, you're able to spawn, that's the word that they used, which was new to me. It might not be new to the the ed tech folks who listen to this podcast, but you can spawn different tools. I feel like it's a video game term. (laughs) It might be, yeah. I mean, this world is very close to the video game world. The graphics and the way that they're developing FX, those I think are very much overlapping with some of the video game development technology. And indeed, it felt to me a little bit like I was in a video game when I was in these environments. But teachers are able to spawn all of these different tools, like big post-it notes that they can put in the air or um, a blackboard that they can use to project images or write words. They can decorate, decorate is perhaps uh, too flourishy of a word, but literally they're decorating these scenes to try to be more historically accurate. So it's a lot of adaptability in the setting that they use. They use Engage as their platform, which gives them a lot of flexibility to be able to design their own landscapes. Um, so it's it's very interesting and, and seems very flexible in terms of how the teacher wants to create different formats for different age groups. Everybody is in their own space, like these these students might be in their living room and the teachers are, are where are they, are they only in Florida or is it as a distributed system? The teachers are all over the country. I talked to the headmaster who is in North Carolina. The person who's the chief technology officer lives in Mississippi. There are teachers who live all over the country. And over the past year, all of the students who participated in Optima Academy Online lived in Florida. They're now expanding their offerings so that it's possible that students might be in a classroom setting with kids who are actually in different states. And indeed, when I talked to Erica Donalds, who's the woman who founded Optima Ed, the company that runs this school, her vision is that ultimately their academy can be not bounded by geography, that students could put on their headset and they could be in a classroom with kids who live thousands of miles away from them, but still have the same curriculum, have access to the same field trips to Mars or to the ancient world of the dinosaurs, and not have distance or the setting where you live, a rural setting, for example, be a limiter on your ability to access this kind of education. I want to step back for a second. How did you come to even hear about this story? So I first heard of Optima Ed, which is the parent company for Optima Academy Online, through a story that I was reporting on a college in Michigan called Hillsdale College, which is a conservative school. It's a pretty central node of the intellectual conservative movement, and In recent years, Hillsdale has started to champion charter schools and specifically classical charter schools, schools that use a curriculum that emphasizes the liberal arts, uh, the teaching of language, um, ancient languages, um, the teaching of great books and original texts, like actually reading the Constitution instead of just reading about the Constitution. And these schools, which have sprung up across the country with Hillsdale support, um, are 
really flourishing and growing. There's a lot of demand for them. And one of the hubs for this growth is Florida. Erica Donalds, who lives in Southwest Florida and is the wife of Congressman Byron Donalds, has been an education activist. And one of her projects has been to work with Hillsdale to launch charter schools in this classical model. And she's helped to do that for brick and mortar charter schools in Florida. And then during the pandemic, she had this opportunity to launch a virtual school, which ultimately led to Optima Academy Online. So it's not just that Optima Academy Online has this very interesting delivery format that's pretty unusual. It's also claiming to be the first ever all virtual, virtual reality classical school. And what's so interesting to me about that is that it's marrying these two different ends, as I see them, of the education spectrum. On the one hand, this is the very bleeding edge of the ed tech frontier. When I talk to people who work in this space, they all said, wow, I've never heard of that before. This is kind of the Wild West. But it's also marrying this movement that tends to be conservative in the little c sense, in the sense that there's a lot of value on tradition, there's a lot of value on old school delivery methods, a lot of suspicion of technology. You know, a lot of these schools, you'll get professors and teachers who have the old school blackboards and chalk. So the marrying of those two sensibilities, I found to be fascinating. Yeah, no, it it is one of those. And you know, it it also is the case that a lot of these, you know, tech startups, um, and big tech that makes the VR metaverse has traditionally come out of a very progressive liberal Silicon Valley. Um, so there's that other cultural um, dimension in a way of where the the kind of vision for some of the um, the technology that underpins what's being used in this particular school. Um, but it's being applied by this, as you mentioned, um, somebody who's been a Republican activist, it sounds like, somebody on the right um, for for school choice in the K-12 realm and using it very much in that and, you know, for that end. Um, So that is kind of a surprising contrast. It is. And her activism, as you said, very much has been within conservative education movements. She's a big school choice advocate uh, going back all the way to the anti-common core movement. Um, So she's been really deep in education activism for a long time. And what was so interesting to me talking to her about her vision is that she saw virtual reality school as a logical extension of the work that she has done in the school choice movement because fundamentally the school choice movement is about giving parents and families the flexibility to be able to access a free publicly funded education but to do so on their own terms not to just be wedded to their local zoned public school and to her the option to have your kids stay at home anywhere in the state of Florida or anywhere in the country for that matter, if her great plans succeed and be able to access their school through a headset that you have at home. And then later in the afternoon, be able to do their homework and do the rest of their schoolwork on their own terms at their own pace to accommodate the rest of their family's schedule or maybe a sports schedule. That to her is ultimately school choice. That's that's a way for families to be able to define how their kids are going to school and what their day looks like. And she ultimately thinks that the best version of this would be a kind of a la carte system 
where students and their families could pick out a physics course through Optima Academy Online, and then they could go to the local community college and do a different kind of course and sort of put together a menu of options that really fit their kids' needs. It's You mentioned the, the tension within the communities that have traditionally you know, adopted some of the, the classical schools. And I believe it, it sounds like there's also been uh, a lot of homeschoolers that have, have also been really interested in the classical classics curriculum that that you've mentioned um, that that Optima is doing. So has there been pushback by some of the people that are the target audience for this virtual reality school because of that, um, you know, kind of anti-technology bent traditionally of some of those some of those parents? Certainly, Erica described to me going to conferences with classical educators. So people who are running classical schools in other places or who are part of the classical schools movement. And she'd give a presentation. At the end of presentation, hands would shoot up into the air with questions. People would be really wanting to question her and challenge her. So within that world, I think she has faced some skepticism and some pushback. I think it's too early to tell exactly who and how she's going to reach audiences because she has only really gotten started. When they launched OAO, Optima Academy Online, they really deliberately targeted homeschooling populations. They targeted churches who wanted to establish little micro schools or pods of students who would use their VR headsets. They were trying to reach out to populations of students who already were doing school on their own terms in a non-traditional way. But I think, as I said before, this is the Wild West. And so it's not clear who's going to be into this and what unlikely corners she's going to be able to tap with this vision, especially as she's able to take this technology to different states, which already the company is in the process of doing. This is really unusual. You know, I look around and and I'm not seeing um, very many places doing this much VR, this, you know, this amount of VR education, you know, hours at a time or, you know, an hour or more on a regular basis as the school is trying to do. And I I hear there's some questions maybe even within experts in the technology about what the right amounts are appropriate for, for, for kids in school. I talked with an expert at Stanford named Jeremy Bielinson, who really is the guy when it comes to understanding VR and the consequences of VR use over time. He's done some research on VR and education as well. And he told me that he finds it hard to imagine having VR as the main delivery mechanism for full-time school in which kids as young as maybe eight or nine or 10 in third grade are having on a headset for multiple hours over multiple days of a week, over multiple weeks in a year. And he said this not just based on his own sensibility, although I certainly think it was based on the experimentations that he's done over time, but he actually had the opportunity during the pandemic to run this experiment. He took students at Stanford where he teaches 
and created through the pandemic these virtual reality classrooms. And they ran experiments on what was useful to do in the classroom setting in VR and what wasn't useful. How long did they want to stay in? How did they put parameters on the use of the technology in order to keep people from experiencing the fatigue that is common from using these headsets over long periods of time? It's kind of like getting car sick or being on a boat and feeling nauseous. Um, Simulator sickness is what it's called. That's one possible consequence. Um, And what he found after having multiple rounds of these classes that were set in VR is that he really felt strongly about placing boundaries and limits on the amount of time that anyone was in VR, let alone people who are still developing in their brains and their eyes uh, as kids. Um, his, His role in his lab is 30 minutes at a time. So you do 30 minutes, you set aside the the headset, maybe you come back later in the day, but 30 minutes is kind of the outer edge of it. So, you know, from his perspective, which I think is perhaps more conservative, again, conservative little C on the spectrum of how you're using the VR technology, is that there are some real downsides to trying to make VR the all the time platform. And that research really just doesn't know, researchers just don't know what happens when you try to put kids into a headset for multiple hours over a sustained period of time. So what does Erica Donaldson say, you know, the founder of this school, when presented with that kind of, you know, concern about the the overuse of, of this format for, for, for students? So I talked to Erica about this and it was very clear to me that she's up in the literature because she was citing to me some of the Stanford studies that I went back and looked up and talked to Jeremy Balenson about. Um, she and her colleagues very clearly look into where the field is at on this. And, you know, she said that they do have some limits in place, right? So it's not all day. They typically will have the headset on for maybe three to four, potentially five sessions in a day. If you're a full-time student at OAO, there are those time limits, 30 to 40 minutes of a session. And so, you know, they are setting some boundaries around it. They encourage students to do the same things that Jeremy Balenson encourages his students to do, which is to talk to a regular person, have a glass of water, take a walk around when you take the headset off so that you can get grounded in reality. Um, So they're thinking about it. She thinks that the benefits outweigh the costs and that it's worth doing what they're doing. Um, I think that in some ways they're running the experiment. They are trying to pioneer something that hasn't been tried before. And I think for researchers who are in this world, they're a really interesting potential case study to see what does happen. Because according to Jeremy Balenson, nobody has really tried, right? It's not something that researchers have wanted to do because it hasn't necessarily been relevant. It hasn't been a frontier that people are trying to push. But it seems to me from talking to Erica that clearly she sees this as the future. She she sees this as one part of the education landscape of the future. Um, And certainly there are other companies that are trying to do similar things about with different kinds of guardrails. In Spirit is another company that I talked to. And um, their CEO said that they have a really different model of how to use the headsets. But nonetheless, they really believe that VR technology can have a role in the classroom. So I think this will be a question that will have more and more relevance in the years to come. After the break, a closer look at what happens when you take a class of middle schoolers on a field trip to the moon. 
Well, in VR at least. Stay with us. What do UC Riverside, University of Memphis, and the University of Oklahoma all have in common? Well, they and hundreds of other institutions have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to Canvas from their legacy LMS provider. And now, K-16 Solutions is solving even more problems for Canvas customers. Canvas institutions that are also using Elucian Banner can finally integrate their data for a comprehensive 360 view. Gone are the days of integration solutions that take months and years to implement or that require extensive institutional resources to build reporting. Scaffold Data X by K-16 Solutions extracts and integrates data from Canvas and Banner, places it in a neutral data model, and stores it in a data warehouse. The result is a cleaner, more accurate view of your institutional data. Scaffold Data X implementation takes just a few days. All data is updated near real time, and every data point in Canvas and Banner can be captured. If your institution is looking for a better way to integrate your data, visit k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. Yeah, I was I was curious since you got to see these demos, were the students that if you saw, you know, actual students in a setting with these VR headsets but in a, you know, shared metaverse type of environment, I guess, you know, classroom in the metaverse. Can can you paint a picture of what that looked like and how it went? Yeah, so I saw a couple of different classroom demos and they weren't demos for the students they were just regular class um where students were either doing review it was the end of the year when i was reporting this story so it wasn't necessarily the standard class that you would get on a random february afternoon a tuesday in february um but one of the sessions that i saw was specifically designed to be a review post-test end-of-year field trip for students. And these were sixth grade science students. They met a professor at the base of Everest. And I was struck, first of all, when I showed up there at the detail that went into this scene. There were tents set up in these neat rows and each tent had a nice sleeping pack rolled up and tucked into the corner, which of course the kids weren't going to sleep there because it's in the metaverse. Um, But nonetheless, it was trying to simulate what it would look like to be at base camp. And there was a whiteboard that had been set up with these post-its on it. And intermingled with the post-its, there was a picture, which I realized was a selfie that the VR avatar professor took when he was in VR with his VR avatar on the base of Everest. So he's taking this picture ahead of time to post it on the board to sort of decorate and show the students what it's like to be there. That's just a level of detail and attention to detail that I thought was pretty stunning. And when the students were actually in the environment, which again was pretty richly curated, they seemed to be really stimulated by it and interested in it, but also potentially the educational part of it, at least in this setting, was a little bit less present than 
the environment part of it, the video game part of it. Um, students were running around. There was an activity that we were supposed to do where we would work together to scale the mountain using a certain way of uh, clicking our controllers to go up a set of chairs up the side of the mountain. We were supposed to be answering review questions of science concepts while we went. But it ended up being a lot more about how you use the controllers and, oh, we used the controller wrong. And so everybody goes back to the beginning and having to get the students managed into that activity and through the physical manipulation of the VR environment rather than clear engagement with the educational material. So, you know, I want to give them credit or at least um, be as generous as I can, which is this was not a regular day. It was during state testing and it was supposed to be a field trip. So it was a more organized chaos environment than a regular classroom would be by design. But for me, this experience getting to be in this classroom setting raised questions about how you balance in a VR setting this important aspect of being in the environment and getting to engage with it and using that for your educational advantage, but also not letting that distract from the actual learning and the actual review and whether there can maybe be a difficulty in striking the balance between the splash and the substance. Yeah, no, and I, we've we've reported on some other VR education efforts and it feels like, you know, I've seen some of these demos myself where it, it is a sense of like, wow, you're, it, you know, there's, there's graphics and there's like novelty to the experience, but is it, you know, is it adding to what education researchers would, would be looking for in like getting material to the students um, or, you know, educators are, are focused on. So it is, it, it is hard to strike that balance. And there's a lot of, um, and of course there's also the, the cost of, and, and the effort to make all those, uh, all those, um, you know, beautiful sceneries and the cost of the headsets and that. So the, I guess the other question is, how it's worth, whether it's worth it versus other forms of online education, which a lot of people experienced, you know, during the pandemic, especially, but even still of like, you know, using Zoom or using other platforms that are less like bells and whistles. Did she talk at all about, you know, why, why VR instead of other forms of virtual? So Erica made the case to me that you can't really do classical school on Zoom, that for whatever reason, these platforms that are two-dimensional just feel flat. It's not really possible to engage in the same way. They had an experience with their brick-and-mortar charter schools over the pandemic trying to do classical school in a Zoom setting, which was good. I think there was um, interest in it, and she said it was really successful, but ultimately left her feeling like you couldn't have the kind of engagement that you need. Um, so she made the case that VR really does add something that goes above and beyond being able to go to these places and have that kind of tactile engagement. There's more opportunity for robust learning. Um, the way that they've managed some of the expense is that they're able to have kids use some of their education savings account dollars to the state of Florida to purchase the headsets. So if they're a charter school student, they're able to get that headset free of cost. Um, and they have, as part of their business model, helping independent schools think through their technology and think through um, the way that they use their platforms. So this is all, the cost of it is actually 
folded into their business. It's a way that they're trying to to make money as um, a charter management organization and as a private business as well. Um, in terms of building the environments, that's also one of the things that they figured out how to sell. So they have people on staff who literally will spend eight hours a day in VR. One of the uh, teachers actually told me that he'll get out of the VR headset and he'll try to move furniture around with his hand in real life, not remembering that you can't do that in real life, which um, Jeremy Balenson at Stanford told me is a key hallmark of the kind of confusion that researchers have seen when you have VR overuse. But in any case, this, this teacher is one of the people who goes in and builds these environments. And then Optima Ed is able to sell those environments to independent schools and potentially now to um, other interested parties on um, platforms across the country. Like for example, in Arizona, their education, they have a lot of education choice in Arizona and they have a platform that you can use um, as a family to choose courses or field trips that you're, you're going to have for your kid. Um, these environments now are an asset that Optima Ed can sell and take across the country. So I think they see it as an investment and as something that will pay off over time. And I'm sure a lot of listeners may think, oh, if you're doing so much school um, virtually for these, you know, young kids in middle school, say, there's a, they're also missing out potentially on activities. But it seems like she's thought, what is her react, you know, answer to what about the social aspect of school that's so important, um, you know, traditionally? Yeah, I was really interested in this question. And I asked them a lot about how they do that social cohesion. They have ways of trying to bring students together. They do school spirit. They're sorted into houses. And so they can have um, their house pride. Like Harry Potter style. Yeah, kind (laughs) of. And they have, you know, Optima gear that they can wear on their avatar. And um, they have social hours and they're able, the kids are able to form clubs. So there are ways that kids can engage socially and try to build community. Are the clubs in VR too? Yeah. Yeah, they are. So, um, for example, I talked to a teacher who leads a finance a club and, you know, will uh, help students with that kind of financial literacy. Students are able to vote on the clubs that they want to have at the beginning of the year. So, you know, there are aspects for social engagement. And I talked to one mom whose son seemed to be doing great. She said that he had had a really hard time in traditional school making friends and that in VR school, he's actually been able to form relationships. But, you know, I think the thing to keep in mind and to hold as part of their perspective on school is that they don't necessarily see it as a problem that school is not the center of a kid's life. There are other things that could be the center of a kid's life, like church or a sports team or a neighborhood. And Anna Mangana, who's the chief technology officer of um, Optima Academy Online, who helps to do the, the tech for the virtual school, you know, he was saying to me that we have put too much weight on the schoolhouse, that we expect school to be too much of the ordering mechanism for kids' life. And he ultimately doesn't see it as a problem that kids might find a social world that's in addition to and outside of school, that school is just school and then life is something separate. It gets back to this political argument at stake in, in the whole model. It's just so interesting. 
I think that's right. I think ultimately um, that is very much a sign of the philosophy, which is what should school and particularly publicly funded school, what role should that play in the development of children's lives? And I think certainly the people running the company believe that there is an important role for school, but also a really important role for family, an important role for other institutions in helping to develop kids. And ultimately, it's okay if school doesn't take the number one seat in forming how kids develop. And there was an interesting quote by Donalds in your piece where, you know, getting back to why not just let these, um, you know, physical schools that are, are bubbling up in classical style all over the country why not just have that be the, the the way this model spreads? And she said, we cannot scale in-person classical style schools as quickly as the demand would like us to. Um, that, that seemed like a key quote in this. I think that's right. Ultimately, this is a movement building project. She sees virtual reality as a way to export classical education beyond the boundaries physically of what the movement has been able to do so far. They're weightless at many, many, many of these classical charter schools, and there's just not the capacity to develop them, especially in rural areas. So to her, this is about accessibility for parents who live somewhere where the nearest classical charter school is 100 miles away they can still get their kids into this kind of curriculum as long as they can get their kids a headset. So what do you, you know, what do you think is next for, it seems like you said she's trying to scale it. And then, you know, does she have any pushback? Is there any political opposition to her project? I would say that Erica has started something that is the Wild West. She has gotten some pushback from within the classical world, clearly within the VR and ed tech world, there is some skepticism or at least question asking about this use of VR technology. And I think she is the first. She's trying to do something that is brand new. I think it will be difficult to sell everybody from all corners of these different worlds on putting your kid in a headset as their primary form of getting educational material of of delivery of, of instruction. But ultimately, I think she's just gotten started. And there are a lot of states that have the potential for um, these technologies to come in, for Optima to come in and be part of their marketplace. So really, I think it's only, only the beginning. And we'll see how big her empire gets. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story and all the research you've done. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was a pleasure to be on. This has been the EdSearch Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one, exploring the future of learning. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can sign up for the EdSearch Podcast newsletter at edsearch.com to keep up with what we're doing and get show notes to go deeper into the topics that we cover. This episode was edited and put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig, and the music is by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.